Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. I am Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. And this week, we've got our guest, Joss Lavery, back in the studio, which is very exciting. I plan on fighting with him to the best of my ability. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about HR. Uh, We've had a number of office etiquette-related questions uh, varying from the minute to the devastating over the last couple of weeks, and I've been getting a lot of feedback uh, of varying perspectives about whether or not going to HR is actually very helpful. Um, There are a really interesting number of opinions that we've been getting in from people who have worked in HR, and I actually wanted to read to you part of a letter uh, that I received from a former HR representative. Uh, who says, basically, think of office operations like speeding. It's illegal to speed, but people do it all the time. It's not until they get caught that there are consequences. Big companies like a red Corvette get more attention, so they have more incentive to follow the rules. Small companies don't have the same incentives. There's no carrot or stick to keep them in line. The only way that a small company changes these things often is when turnover is really high and employees get unhappy and leave. But in times of a downturn in the economy, people can't just leave for another job where they get treated better. As far as a stick, small companies don't have any government regulators checking on them to see if they're doing what the law requires. This is the case with HR. No matter what the law stipulates HR should be, HR usually is just a sounding board to protect the business itself. HR is not an advocate for employees. Really, their job is to make sure the company doesn't get sued. That's it. They work for the company. So keep that in mind when people are writing for advice. They may want to know how to handle what they should do next. And any advice that just ends with, why don't you talk to HR, isn't really helpful. It might be helpful in big companies, and even then, it's not a sure thing, but for small companies, this often isn't an option. And I thought that that was a really good point. I've actually uh, worked at a couple of smaller companies where there was no HR department or where the sort of nominal HR representative was also my boss, uh, which can make it really difficult if your problem is your boss. And I'm sort of curious to hear, I have yet to hear from anyone who's actually worked in HR who said, no, we're not just there to protect the company. You should come to us. We are here to help employees first and foremost. Um, and I'm curious if there are any of you out there. Like, are there any HR employees or, or or heads of HR who feel like, no, we are not just there to protect the company. We're here for you. We want you to come to us. Um, because maybe there are a lot of you, and and I just haven't happened to hear from you yet. But um, that is that is really tricky. You know, I've worked at a lot of places where HR would show up your first week to give you a gift basket and let you know like how to die online to get out. And that was sort of the last you would hear from them. And they were generally very friendly and usually got my name wrong, um, which is an interesting combination of like enthusiasm and being incorrect, which I find sort of charming, but isn't super helpful. Um, So that's something that I'm kind of thinking about right now. Like, Is going to HR actually useful for the average employee who's looking at an issue that's maybe frustrating but not quite worth their quitting over? Um, Like, does going to HR actually do anything or or is that something that should really just be a last resort? Is it more useful if you're at a huge company? Um, 
I don't know. So I welcome your input and your feedback. If you've had a great experience with HR where they just solved your problem and everything worked out, let us know because I haven't heard a lot of those stories and I'm curious if uh, if any of them are out there. Well, uh, I'm really happy to have Joss Lavery back in the studio with us because he is one of already like Hall of Fame podcast guests. Uh, Joss is an academic and a writer who lives in the Bay Area and a good friend of the podcast. And uh, now he's going to help us answer your questions. Hi, Joss. Hey, Mallory. Really excited to be back. I'm so glad to have you back. Thank you. Go ahead and read this one, please. So, subject, forever alone and happy about it. I'm a 30-year-old single mother of a six-year-old son. I have not been in a relationship, serious or otherwise, in over six years and spend all of my free time with my son and close family members. I don't go out unless it is for a family activity or something my son wants to do. I have close friends that I chat with online, but I really don't socialize in person with anyone other than my family. I am not interested in pursuing any type of romantic or sexual relationships with anyone and have not been for several years. I feel very happy and fulfilled being single and independent and don't foresee this ever changing. The thought of getting married, living with a partner, or even starting to date someone fills me with anxiety and dread. What is wrong with me? I am truly happy with my life the way it is, but my mother and close friends think I should be dating or at least have the desire to do so. Are they right? I think my favorite part of this letter is the fact that the sentence what is wrong with me is immediately followed by I am truly happy with my life the way it is. Absolutely. What is wrong with me? I am truly happy. Yeah. uh, Asked and answered. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're doing great. Stay the course. Yeah. Congratulations to you. Uh, Only thing to add is you've essentially written a letter to an advice column just to tell us how happy you are. And I'm really proud of you for doing (laughs) that. That's really charming. I wish more people would write in and say, like, things are great. Things are great. My son's great. Yeah. Everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. I um, Should we pretend to see a problem here? or Should we play devil's advocate? Um, well, there is a problem, mm-hmm. uh, which is that there is a thought of getting married, living with a partner, or even starting to date, fills me with anxiety or dread. Uh, you know, there is anxiety and dread in this, in this letter. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the answer is something like, you don't have to get married. You don't have to live with a partner. You don't have to date. Yeah. Yeah, that is one way to meet that anxiety. Yeah, uh, A smaller problem would maybe be that uh, this person's mother and close friends think that they should be dating, or at the very least, tell their family that they wish they were dating. Yeah, Maybe your family would be happier if once a week you complained. Maybe that would solve all your problems. Secretly, you're full of happiness and excitement, but once a week at family dinner you say, gosh, I wish I had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Yeah. And then everyone sort of makes sympathetic noises and you... Carry on with the fiction for another week. Yeah, everyone's got to feel some degree of pity towards everybody else in their life. So yeah. if you're really, if you're really as happy as you appear to be, I'd be annoyed at you. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Everyone's just so sick of seeing how pleased you are. Yeah, I, I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that you're responsible for that. Um, no, this is uh, good for you. Congratulations. I mean, you you mentioned. I, I suppose I want to say this as as someone who is raised by a single mother. Um, you mentioned being a single mother. Uh, go single mothers. Um, really fabulous. Yeah. It's, and uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's hard and brilliant, and congratulations to you for doing it so beautifully. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like you have any serious problems with the way that you have arranged your life. I'm sure someone could read this and say, oh, you must spend time with people outside of your family because what about when they all grow up and leave you? 
Um, to which I say that is transactional thinking. Yeah. I, I think you're not doing anything wrong. I think it's wonderful that you know your own mind. You sound like your life is rich and full. And um, I, yeah, I think you should remember you don't have to do any of those things. And um, you can just remind your family members that you don't want to date. Yeah. That you're quite happy. You know, it's it's really great to hear from somebody who's happy being single. Uh, it's it's something. There's not a lot of movies that end with people happy being happy being single. Uh, it, it often seems pathologized, and I think just really well done for writing this letter. It's it's inspiring, and uh, I'm really happy for you. Yeah, this is fantastic, and you're great. And I hope all the other letters today are just like this one. Yeah. All right. So this one is called "For the Love of Money." Dear Prudence, my partner of five years is my favorite person in the world. When he came into my life, so did his financial baggage, loans, credit card debt, low credit score and all. Knowing that his financial future would become mine, and because I love him, I offered to take over our joint finances about two years ago. He agreed, and we've worked together to educate ourselves, improve his credit and our financial future. Our hard work paid off, and we saved enough money to buy a house and a car and raise his credit score. Due to his poor credit at the time, both pieces of property are in my name. We share the expenses equally and will file for joint ownership when we marry next year. That said, the fact that our property is in my name has been a sensitive area for him, which brings me to my problem. He's had a hard time breaking some of the spending habits that led to his financial situation. And it's hard for me to address this when the issue is so fraught for him. He started a new job in a high-pressure environment recently and has been incredibly stressed, which leads to retail therapy and eating out constantly. He says it's his way of unwinding but it's gotten to the point where our joint account is noticeably shrinking between paychecks. We've had several conversations where he promises to do better, but then I review our bank statements and see charges for Uber, takeout, and haircuts twice a month. I've tried taking out cash at the beginning of the week and setting a budget for both of us, but that doesn't work. I've suggested meditation or therapy to deal with his stress, both things I rely on to manage mine. I'm so tired of having this conversation and not seeing a change. This is the only issue in our relationship. Everything else is great, but it's a big one. How can I approach this in a way that will actually yield results? It's really tough, this one, I think. Yeah, yeah. I <clears throat> I missed the last question. Yeah. Um, Actual problems for those in days. this case. Yeah. Uh, it also makes me think of um, the episode of Lady Dynamite, Maria Bamford's new show, where she meets Dean Cain mm -hmm. because he's trying to buy her house. And she thinks this is sort of going to solve all her problems. And then in the next scene, her agent calls back and says... You know, he can't buy the house. He has the worst credit score I've ever he seen. He can't even rent a house. <laughs> <laughs> he can't even rent a house. And and his response, he just has this wonderful dopey look on his face. And he just says, what's a credit score? Yeah. Um, You're and, looking at me because you know that at some point in the last 10 years, I have asked that very same question. <laughs> I am looking at you because I'm sure at some point in the last 10 years, I also said something very similar to yeah. that. Um, and if nothing else, I think you should start watching Lady Dynamite. Yeah, it's excellent. I think it would help you a lot as you sort of figure out what you want out of life. Mm -hmm. And also, it, it, it will renew your appreciation for Dean Cain. And indeed, Henry Cavill, another Superman. Henry Cavill's on Lady Dynamite? Yeah, he's um, he plays the flatulent one. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, that won't be as helpful to your situation. No. Um, yeah, this... Um, this sounds like you're doing a lot of work. It sounds that way to me too, yeah. And it doesn't sound like it's making you very happy. It doesn't sound like this person's very happy at all, no. Um, and I guess money problems aren't like other problems in some way because if you're if you're using money to to deal with the fact that you're stressed out about having no money, 
then you're just compounding the problem and it's it's a very vicious circle you're getting into. Yeah. No, and it's not as if I have no sympathy for that. I, I've, in my own life, often confused self-indulgence for self-care. Yeah. Um, and I certainly understand how good it feels to buy something in the moment and to mm-hmm. eat out when you don't want to do the dishes um, and how in the moment it feels like such an instant rush of relief mm-hmm. that you can mistake it for stress relief. But I think it's actually... Closer to an addiction. Mm-hmm. I, I, not that I would suggest that your partner has a shopping addiction. I want to make that really clear. I don't think that that's what's going on here. Just that um, that's the sort of behavior that gives you instantaneous relief and is not actual. That's not actual stress relief. Right. Um, no, it's 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 short term deferral. Yeah. Uh, that compounds the problem. Um, and it sounds like your strategies in the past have been, I review the bank accounts. I've tried setting a budget for him. And he hasn't followed it. It sounds like the letter writer has been really active in trying to straighten out this person's finances, which is something I can understand at the beginning of a relationship. But it also sounds to me like they're moving into a phase of that relationship where maybe the letter writer wants to reconsider. Mm -hmm. uh, Or at least wonder what... Do we know if it's a he or a she? Uh, I have, I believe, made some assumptions about their gender. Uh, the the partner who's spending is 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 an issue is male. Yeah. Uh, the letter writer I don't believe has made it clear whether or not they are okay, male. Okay, so, so it could be a woman, could be a man. Could be a woman, could be a man. I I would think that the letter writer wants to um, work out what they can do to protect themselves mm-hmm. um, and have that conversation with the partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever else that's going to lead to in the long run, I do think that the letter writer has so much on the line. That, you know, mm-hmm. self-protection has to be an issue. Yeah, and, and that doesn't mean that you have to break up with this person. Um, it's certainly possible to be in a relationship with someone that you love and respect and admire, but is so bad with money you would not want to commingle your finances. And sure. I think kind of a, a most challenging scenario would be staying together, accepting this is unlikely to change, and maintaining really strict separate finances. I think that's right. Um, which is hopefully not what you'll have to do, um, but is something that you should at least consider. I think it's really wise that the properties are in both of, or, um, are just in the letter writer's names. I mm-hmm. think this person doesn't seem like they're kind of ready to handle that sort of uh, financial commitment or goal. Um, but if, if you've tried making a budget for them and their sort of only plan has, has been, I'm going to do better, which is vague, um, and, and it has more to do with a feeling than it does with any sort of specific goal or, or action. Um, I think in, unless you see real signs of change in the future, you should look at separate finances. Yeah. And moving into a phase of your relationship where you're disentangling your finances doesn't discredit the relationship in any way. It doesn't need to mean that it's all been <clears throat> a mistake or anything like that. Um you know, this may just be a period of recalibration and readjustment. Right, because it just means that what you've been doing isn't working. Right. And if if things continue in the direction they're going, mm. mingling your finances would be a disaster. Yeah. Not that this person's not worth being with. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, I, I don't... I, I never like it when somebody writes in about their partner and says something about they've been really stressed lately. Yeah. Because that's so often an excuse for really bad behavior. Yeah. Like, as if everyone isn't pretty stressed. Yeah. Um, and as if the ability to treat other people well during times of stress isn't sort of an important component of being a decent human being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure his job is very high pressure and I'm sure that he is very stressed out. And lots of people with both of those things are able to do things like have an honest conversation about their financial goals. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and I think it would be helpful to you to say, I don't want to set a budget for you. Um, but I would love to have a conversation where you and I talked about like actual financial goals we both have. Right. Like, cause maybe this person says, I don't really care if my finances never get better. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with things the way they are. Like you should have that information. You should. Because then you can make a decision of your own. Like, yeah. does that, does hearing that make me so upset that I don't want to be with you? Mm-hmm. Or does hearing that kind of free me to say, oh, I've been working really hard to fix this for you and you kind of don't care. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to stop doing all this free work, right? right? I mean, or or maybe if if you were to say I'm not going to try to fix this for you anymore and I I don't want to keep paying for your takeout, then that might incentivize this your your partner to say, "Okay, oh, well this is a little more frustrating than I wanted, so I'll set my own budget and mm-hmm. learn how to stick to it." That's not it's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's difficult, mm-hmm. but it's not impossible. I also reading between the lines a little bit, uh this newly high-pressured job that it, that, it, that the partner has it, it often seems to me, I guess I'm speaking from my own experience here, that it's in moments where I'm making a little more money than I used to be mm. that I that my spending gets out of control or where I really need to pay particular attention to that. Right. This idea of there's money in my account, that's a yeah. mistake. I need to get rid of it. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's, you know, maybe part of the conversation as well. But just to stress to the letter writer, um, your primary concern here is to look after yourself. And it's not your job to micromanage your partner's finances. Right. Yeah, I would agree. And it sounds like you're not interested in leaving this person. It sounds like you, you, you're you really happy with the rest of your relationship, but you do want results. You haven't been getting results with what you've tried before. Um, I think being a little bit stricter and, and backing off a little bit and kind of sticking to your guns will be helpful for the both of you. And you might find that he thrives under these circumstances, and you might find that he kind of continues to run into similar problems. And again, that doesn't mean that he's not a partner you love and want to be with, but it might mean that... Um, you know, you, you, you keep your finances separate. And that doesn't mean that, like, if he can't pay rent, you kick him out. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting you treat him like a tenant who has, like, very tenuous claims to to living with you and being a part of your life. But um, you've done so much trying to fix his finances for him. I think you should try not doing that and see what happens. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, the next one is husband smoking. And yeah. um, once again, it's just like, how do I deal with something I can't stand? I have been married to my husband for over 20 years. He is a smoker. I am not. I come from a family where all the adults smoked but me, so this was not a problem. All I ever asked was that he not smoke while we were eating and not to smoke in the bedroom. I have never asked him to quit, but have supported his several attempts at quitting. Once he quit for two years, he has always gone back. I know this is an addiction that he has to fight on his own. That being said, health problems and orders from his doctor made him quit cold turkey. He can't even have nicotine patches or gum. This was over a year ago. He still occasionally has cravings. I understand that. What is concerning me is that he blames me for not being able to smoke. He says that the doctor and I conspired with each other to get him to quit. He was in an accident that resulted in him getting a bone graft. Nicotine will kill the graft. His friends say the doctor is lying and that I am a controlling bitch for not letting him smoke anymore. His regular doctor prescribed antidepressants to help with the cravings, but he is still angry. I never know when he will lash out at me. His and my breathing quality has improved considerably, but that doesn't matter to him. We have a great marriage except for this problem. I don't know what to do. I don't argue with him when he accuses me of this. I just say that I would never do that to him, and I leave the room. How else can I handle this? So that's a letter that really takes a turn. It really does. I thought it was about smoking when I introduced it, and I would now like to revise my statement, having heard the entirety of the letter. Um, 
revise away. I think this is a letter about either someone whose husband has developed some sort of um, paranoia or hallucinations uh, and and requires a very different type of medical help than what he's been getting lately. Uh, or this is someone who is in an abusive relationship and needs to get out. Uh, yeah, I would agree. What are your... Yeah, tell me... Lead, lead us on this one. Uh, well, I mean... Clearly, being in a relationship with someone who is accusing you of having conspired with his doctor to withhold medical information is a very serious situation. And I'd agree with Mallory that at least a first step would be to try to talk with a mental health professional about this. Which, unfortunately, he might see as conspiring with a medical professional against him. Sure. Um, As to the other parts, you know, one of the things that's so powerful about this letter, I think, is that you know, this guy's acting like an addict. Uh, he's he's turned something that is necessary in his life, quitting smoking in order that his bone graft doesn't get rejected, into a paranoid conspiracy that the world is launching against him and for which you've become, unfortunately, the spokesperson. Um, that's a disastrous and unsafe situation for you. And I would, I would seriously consider, you know, revising the terms of your relationship with him. Yeah, I... I, I... Obviously, I have a couple of thoughts in my head, like what if whatever this accident was caused some sort of brain damage that has resulted in paranoid fantasies, uh, which is kind of an elaborate way of reading between the lines. That may or may not be the case. I, I really don't know enough about the terms of their marriage. And who um, are the friends? That, that, I mean, that's my other question, right, is is what kind of friends does he have that are reinforcing re- reinforcing this irrational delusion? Um. Uh, yeah, if your husband's friends are, are agreeing with him that you are a controlling bitch, if your husband is using the language controlling bitch, I would get out of the house, frankly. It sounds like you're already pretty good at leaving the room when he makes these accusations. I would go a step further. Um, I, I, I would say as long as you somehow believe that your doctor and I have conspired to keep you away from cigarettes by faking a mental health crisis, I, I can't. A physical health crisis. Right, yes, yeah, yeah I, I can't. Taking a bone graft transplant. I mean, that's pretty outrageous. And mm-hmm. I, I think for your own safety, um, you should at least consider finding a place to stay with a, a trusted friend or a family member um, until you can uh, kind of think about what you want your next steps to be. Because this sounds like something that's really come out of left field and has started to escalate. And, and I worry for your safety. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, because you, you, you already knew you can't control his smoking. You, you can even less kind of control this, this delusion. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I, I mean, it, I just have a great deal of, uh, of, of sympathy. This is, this is a really horrifying situation. And, you know, there are support groups for people with serious problems with addictions. Um, I believe there is one for people with serious problems with nicotine addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 really strikes me that this isn't a problem about a guy who doesn't want to give up smoking. This, this is a, this is a, this is a narrative about uh, a guy who has developed out of a desire not to give up smoking a paranoid theory of his own existence, right? And is taking it out on people who are trying to care for him, right? And and I, like we said earlier, but I would really like to stress is I do think your first step needs to be contacting his doctor. Yeah, um, your your doctor can't. Uh, necessarily confirm that they're going to do anything about this because of, of, of HIPAA and medical privacy rules, but you absolutely should connect, contact as many doctors as he's ever seen. You know, if he's if he's gone through a bone graft, he probably has at least one or two specialists as well as a GP that he's seeing um, and say, 
here is here's what my husband is doing lately. This is really out of character. It's delusional. It's paranoid. It's scaring me. Um, and and I can't seem to um, bring reality into the situation in such mm-hmm. a way that he can recognize it. And and your doctors should his doctors should be made aware of this immediately. Um, and and I think I would certainly encourage him to would he go to therapy, a psychiatrist, a, assuming he would even be willing to. Yeah, assuming he would even be willing to. It, it, it's the sort of thing where you can almost imagine couples therapy having some kind of initial effect hmm. because no couples therapist, as far as I understand it, no couples therapist would ratify the paranoid fantasy even right. for a Getting second. Getting confirmation so, you know, some from an outside of, party. Yeah. And maybe that would be something that he could hear, yeah. although he would maybe just as easily storm out and say, hey, you're against sure. me too. Um, but it might be worth trying if only to answer for yourself the question of, can we can we work together on this? Because mm-hmm. it seems like he's determined to cling to this fantasy, even if it's at the risk of losing you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say this is a really sad and bewildering situation. Um, my my guess is that it seems like some sort of mental delusion. It's also possible this is just a straight up abuse tactic, and he mm-hmm. knows perfectly well um, that she is not conspiring with his doctor, but is trying to make her feel um, like there's something wrong with her. Mm-hmm. But it. it that seems less likely to me. It seems more likely that something's going on with him um, in his mind. Yeah, I, I mean, we also do know that this this person sees a doctor who has prescribed antidepressants mm-hmm. to help to help with the cravings, but therefore he is he has some treatment for for, for a mental health condition. Right, and I, I I don't know that paranoid delusions are ever a possible side effect of antidepressants. But again, it's worth bringing up with the doctor who prescribed them. Sometimes there are very rare. Um, medication interactions that can produce mania or psychosis or, or, or persecution complexes. And, and unfortunately, you are now going to have to do the exact thing that he thought you were doing, which is conspire with medical professionals against him. Um, and, I, and I think probably for him, that will be not something that he can handle. And for your own safety, you will need to do so at some distance. And that's not to say that maybe someday with some sort of help, you two can't reconcile. But as things are now, I don't think that you're I don't think that you're safe emotionally or physically in that house. Um, yeah, I agree. I think this is a very difficult situation. And whoever his friends are, are not good people. Yeah, the friends are the worst. The, friend, <clears throat> the friends are just really stoking a, 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 this situation. Right. I mean, provided that... I'm, I'm assuming that you get the 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 friends opinions via him so right. it's, it's it's possible the friends are i hope very much yeah. that he is not inviting them over and yeah. and kind of everybody ganging up on her yeah um yeah i would say take care of yourself get in touch with his doctors um do your best but if if you can't affect change remove yourself from the situation yeah um, absolutely yeah. Whew. okay that was um really heavy and uh the next one is a little bit lighter. Yeah. This question is, is this what a midlife crisis is like? And I thought we haven't actually gotten to answer like a good old-fashioned classic midlife crisis question in a while. Or maybe ever. So let's take it away. Dear Prudence, I have a problem that may seem minor but is truly consuming my life. I work in construction. I'm good at it. I like it. It keeps me outside. I'm married to a beautiful, wonderful woman who loves me. We live in a nice apartment. Everything is great. Not perfect, but great. When I look at my friends' lives, I realize just how lucky I am. But despite that, I can't shake the feeling that I'm missing something. I feel like I was destined to do great things, maybe even amazing things, but I look at my life and all I do is build small office buildings and large homes. I drive past buildings I've worked on and I should feel a sense of accomplishment, but all I feel is sadness. I've taken to staying up late, researching exciting but outrageous, even ridiculous things that I might do. I started a physical training program that the Navy SEALs use, 
wondering if I might make a good special ops soldier. I spend weeks thinking that I might volunteer for one of those manned missions to Mars that are sometimes talked about. My sleep and my health are starting to suffer. My wife has noticed, and it's affecting our relationship. She looks like she wants to kill me most of the time, and I can't really blame her. I've gotten into counseling, and my therapist is helping me to deal with these feelings. We've started setting goals that are more achievable. He suggested that I take an exciting vacation, just me and my wife, but I'm not sure that it's going to curb this urge. Have I just developed a midlife crisis? Will this pass, or do I need to make some radical lifestyle changes? You must change your life. You must change your life, yeah. I I, I should... I'm not telling him to change his life. It's a poem we've talked about. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that. Why? Because now we're going to have to talk about Rilke. Now we got to explain the poem. And yeah. that's no one No one wrote into this column <laughs> hoping that we would talk about Rilke. Like, we don't have to talk about Rilke. I've got so much sympathy for this guy. Yeah. I, I, I thought that you might. And I felt that I didn't have enough. And so yeah. I thought that I should bring you on board. Yeah. No, man, I, I really... I really feel what you're saying. I, is this it? Is this what you get? Um, I thought I could go to Mars. I thought I could be a Navy SEAL. Those things weren't exactly my goal. But, you know, um, I think what you're describing is very common and very broad. And you're going to have to find ways. This guy's going to have to find ways to define for himself what success might look like moving forward. Uh, you've, you, he has done a very great deal to be that he can be proud of and takes a justified kind of pride in that. But that doesn't scratch the itch, and it's going to be a long process to work out how you, how he can do that. I think that's a. I mean, that's a great answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I I feel something quite similar. I um, but just less kindly, which is just sort of like, yeah, you should figure this out, guy. Yeah. Um, but no, I I mean, his question is like, does this matter? And yes, absolutely. Like the answer is like your feelings of of frustration and and like you don't know what's meaningful about your own life they absolutely matter like obviously you shouldn't use them to mistreat the people around you Mm -hmm. Um, you shouldn't use it as a reason to check out of other people's problems like you're not the only person who has ever experienced this so don't make the mistake of thinking that this is the only crisis Um, but it also does matter and there's no kind of achievement like it, it doesn't matter what you have or haven't done in your life if what you're feeling right now is a sense of of aimlessness and loss like that mm-hmm. that doesn't matter you should pursue that you should not try to stuff it down and just be grateful for what you have and ignore it and try to move on like you should it's great that you're in therapy you should try to figure out what are things that do make me feel like my life is meaningful and maybe that will be more vacations than therapy and maybe that will be do we think it's going to mars i don't think it's going to mars you know, what I will say is that I think this is not a midlife crisis. I think it's actually part of feeling proud of one's success. I think it is the the shadow cast by looking at those houses uh, or, or, or feeling some pride in a job well done. Um, because as soon as one feels that, the, the homeostatic procedure of the brain starts going, ah, but is it enough? Um, if you didn't feel anything to be proud of, I doubt you'd be asking questions about Navy SEALs and missions to Mars. Um, those things, I think, somehow seem to go together. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you're going to have to live with that dissatisfaction. I don't think there's a way to conjure it away. And, and bear in mind, if you did go to Mars, if you did become a Navy SEAL, uh, you would have the following experience at some point. You'd be back in your family home at a family gathering. You would grab someone by the shoulders and say, I went to Mars, goddammit. And you would look in their eyes and you would realize that person didn't care. 
And you would have to face some sense that even going to Mars, even all of the training that you'd gone through, the, 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 the extraordinary fact of having been one of the first human beings to explore that terrain wouldn't be enough. You can't force. There is no objective standard for success. Being a Navy SEAL traveling to Mars, inventing a cure for cancer, they're not going to cut it um, because there's always going to be someone that doesn't care and you can't make them care. So you've got to make yourself care somehow. Joss, thanks for taking us out on such a beautiful note. And um, we're definitely going to have to have you again on the show. Thank you so much, Mallory. Before we close this episode, I just want to remind everyone that if you're hoping you're going to be one of the first people to live on Mars, um, I just want to remind you that Kim Stanley Robinson says we're not going to be able to do it. And if Kim Stanley Robinson says we can't go to Mars, um, then Kim Stanley Robinson probably knows what he's talking about. Uh, if you're not familiar with his excellent series about terraforming uh, Red Mars and Blue Mars, uh, he's a fantastic science fiction author. And he wrote sort of the definitive series about, like, what would happen if we terraformed Mars? And then earlier this year, he wrote a really depressing article where he said, yeah, we're definitely not going to be able to do it. And um, it just makes me really sad because I've always sort of figured in the back of my mind, like, sure, you know, the heat death of the galaxy is going to be a real bummer. But at some point, we're going to be able to fling some, you know, pods of ourselves into space and make it work, if not on Mars, then elsewhere. And he wrote a really convincing argument about, guys, I'm going to be honest, I don't remember a lot of it, but it had something to do with the bacteria in our guts and how they can't survive in the environment of space and how that's going to be really difficult to uh, move to another planet. Uh, I really wish I could remember more of it than just, oh, bacteria is going to make it tricky. But bacteria is going to make it tricky. So we're not going to be able to terraform Mars, which means we're really stuck here on Earth. Um, and if Kim Stanley Robinson's given up the dream, then I think so should the rest of us. So if you were hoping to make it to Mars or any other planet, um, I'd like you to go ahead and quietly bury that dream now. Just let it go. Make a little headstone. Take a minute. Take a moment of silence. Um, and reread Red Mars, actually, now that I think about it. Or that great Val Kilmer movie, which I think was called Red Planet. Anything about Mars. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews help new listeners find the podcast, and we know you all want to help people. Plus, we'd love to know what you think. Just search for Slate, Dear Prudence. Do you know what I really wish we could do? Is, uh, as you may or may not know, prudence is one of the four classical virtues, uh, you know, as opposed to the three theological virtues that were later combined into the seven heavenly virtues that oppose the seven deadly sins. Uh, so it's prudence, temperance, uh, justice, and fortitude or courage. And I've been really wishing that, like, once a year we could flip. So I could be dear prudence one year and then dear temperance the next year uh, and then, you know, dear uh, justice the, ne- the year after that um, and, and, and just kind of cycle through all the things that the Stoics loved. Uh, just like a year as Marcus Aurelius just being like, does anything happen to you? Well, the universe wanted it. Suck it up and be the emperor of Rome. 
um, which is part of why I love the meditation so much, because it's really just a note. It was like a series of notes to self that kind of only apply if you're the emperor of Rome. Um, but a lot of people have enjoyed reading them and thinking, ah, I should also do these things. Um, but I, I really think you should go easier on yourself since you're not the emperor of Rome. Anyways, all of which is to say I would love to do a year where I was not prudent at all and was just like advocating fortitude. And it was just like, invade Gaul and Galicia. Like... <laughs> get out there and like tear down the vandal kingdom and um that's that would be my advice to 